1: Joining us today is a return guest, but this is the first time he's joined us back on the Ducks Unlimited podcast as the Ducks Unlimited Chief Scientist, Steve Adair. Welcome back to the show. Good to be with you today, Chris. Sorry, I should I should have rephrased that, Doctor Steve Adair, the D.U. Chief Scientist. I apologize for that. I'm reading off notes and I forgot a little bit there. You know, Steve, you've you've come on the show before in a different role, um, but but today's show is a little bit different. And and what I really want to do is provide our audience with a uh, fifty thousand foot overview of Ducks Unlimited science and research, how DU uses that research, and some of the different aspects of the research and science-led habitat conservation efforts that DU does. But before we dive into that, um, I want you to provide a background of how you became the Ducks Unlimited Chief Scientist. I mean, it's a very prestigious role, um, I'm sure from you know within the frameworks of the science community, but uh, provide us a little bit of a background of how you became the DU Chief Scientist.
3: I grew up on the Texas Gulf Coast near the Galveston area, and you know during those early years, I would I just gravitated to wetlands and uh, spent a lot of time you know wading around in estuaries, uh, catching trout and redfish, and enjoying uh, waterfowl hunting in the fall. And and it was just you know really captivated by the magic of waterfowl migration, the diversity of species, and and um, so I went on to graduate school and I, I studied. Um, uh, redheads and pintails in the Laguna Madre of Texas and how they utilized um fresh water sources when uh, after feeding in, in the hypersaline lagoons down there and, and really understanding that link between uh, those estuaries and the freshwater ponds. And um, during that time, um, I was also able to um, work up in Alaska studying molting areas for um, Black Brant, um, another fascinating uh, project that I got to help on. So one, you know, one of the really interesting things about this business is that you get to travel around, you know, the continent and and in some cases the world, and and get to see some really special places uh, for waterfowl and understand, you know, the whole life cycle and and so, from there i I went over to south carolina and and studied coastal wetlands and how they how they respond to tropical storms and how how those storms are important to regenerating coastal wetlands and um and through that that time, i you know met a number of the the d u folks uh, in Memphis and you know was lucky enough to be able to land a job at our national headquarters and and start in uh, habitat Development uh, Program, and my early years with DU. From there, I, I moved out to the Great Plains region and in the Bismarck office. And I always uh, was fascinated with the prairie pothole region. You know what happens um, here really drives uh, the sizes of our annual duck populations. And I worked in conservation delivery for a number of years in the Great Plains region before moving on to this most recent role as chief scientist. And, you know, as we were developing that role and working uh, with our CEO, Adam Putnam, and our our chief conservation officer, Karen Waldrop, we decided that given the importance of the Prairie Pottle region and and, um, our emphasis on this landscape and a critical role science plays in driving our programs that, that I would be located, um, in the prairies and, and stay in Bismarck. And that's where I'm operating out of. I have a, a national responsibilities, but, uh, living in the prairie pothole region and keeping close eye on what's happening here and, and helping uh, to work with our conservation team and, and make sure that, we have the science we need to um, help guide those programs and be as effective as we can.
1: And that really kind of leads me into my first question. I mean, knowing that, that you're headquartered there in Bismarck, and and I'm sure most of our listeners are already aware of this, but but Ducks Unlimited has a, a very, very nice facility there in Bismarck. But, you know, you get to see you're right in the middle of you know, the North Dakota prairie habitat there. Um, you get to see that every day, probably in your drive in, drive out from work. Explain to us what it looks like right now. I think everyone has a pretty good idea. We've been providing some regular habitat updates that it's dry, um, but explain what that means there and kind of what it looks like across the landscape.
3: Yeah, and it is it is really dry, Chris. I mean, I, I've been up here for 25 years and, and this is the driest that, that I've ever witnessed you know all the all the weather data that we have really confirms that it it is the the dry the last 9 months have been the driest ever recorded um in North Dakota and so that's 100 years of weather data we've had the driest uh, 9 months ever it's the first widespread prairie drought so i think it's important for listeners to to understand that this isn't an isolated drought there are years where the dakotas will be dry and canada will be wet and and vice versa when canada will be um, dry and the dakotas um, are wet and and those years we tend to have decent fall flights and and waterfowl production but um, this year is notable in that it is dry across the heart of the prairie pothole region so north dakota manitoba saskatchewan are all um, very dry um, this year and and you know so what we're seeing out there are are the smaller seasonal and temporary ponds are, are not there those are really important for pairs to settle on in the in the spring and and we have you know ducks that are flocked up this time of year that would normally be spread out across the landscape and and you would see lone males, and when you see lone males, um, that's an indication that that the female that they're paired with is is on a nest out in the landscape. And we see we're seeing very few lone males this year. We see flocks of twenty to thirty um, birds together, um, indicating that they're not trying to breed this year. So when it gets really dry, they'll um, they'll hang out. Um, they'll forego breeding a lot of them will overfly the prairies and go up to the boreal forest and in places like that and um so it's going it's kind of a new reality for us um this year with with our wetland conditions and our our duck populations but it's also really important for the listeners to understand that this is a this is a normal cycle it tends to happen in the prairies every 20 or 30 years and the birds are adapted to it. The populations will decline, but they will remain healthy enough to when things get wet again, they will rebound. So while it's disappointing and you know unfortunate to go through these periods, we don't need to panic. Um, we need to remember that if history is our guide that When the snow and rain comes back, the birds will respond and we'll fill the skies again as long as we can maintain that habitat
1: base. One other question on that, you know, I've spoken to one of my other guests about this just recently. Um, He's from John Pullman, one of our magazine contributors, lives in South Dakota. And we started talking about very similar um, conditions that you were just describing in South Dakota. And and he kind of hit on and and we both agreed that, you know, drought in the prairies, um, we talk about it and, and we talk about, you know, the potential for, um, very few breeding pairs, you know, the success of breeding goes down, but this is not a bad thing as far as the habitat goes. Can you kind of explain, um, why it is healthy for these wetlands to go through this drought?
3: You know, wetlands go through this, this cycle of drying out, reflooding, after they've been flooded for a long time, like most of our wetlands were in before this year, the amount of vegetation decreases, the abundance of aquatic invertebrates, which are critical to nesting hens and, and critical to uh, brood survival decline. And the wetlands re- really become more lake-like, so they they resemble more of a Uh, a lake situation where you have a little bit of vegetation around the edge and the rest of it's open water. As they go through the drying cycle, um, those loose sediments consolidate, um, nutrients recycle, and it it, it exposes a seed bank that's uh, really important for revegetating those wetlands. So once they dry out, they're able to revegetate and that really sets the stage for when water comes back. Um they're extremely productive, and so that's when we get the real boons in water popu- um waterfowl populations. Um, that's when we we see hens uh, nesting and and uh, broods really uh, exploding. and so uh, that whole cycle, as you alluded to chris is is critical for our wetlands to reach that really productive stage. If they stay flooded for longer periods of time, you just don't have the same a potential to fill the skies that you do uh, when you come out of a drought situation and re- re-flood things. They they talk about this, uh, I, I know, like in aquatic ecology, it's called a reservoir effect. You know, fishermen know this well, when when new reservoirs flooded and all that vegetation uh, gets covered with water, it, it leads to an abundance of insects and small fish and you know that's when you see um you know largemouth bass records broken and and tremendous numbers of of fish from that flooding of of all that that vegetation same thing is true and in prairie potholes, So that, that reservoir effect is, is a powerful thing in nature.
1: Yeah. I just think it's important for, for all of us, you know, just to remember that it's not all doom and gloom there. Um, these, these cyclical systems, I guess I should say, you know, it's, it's a part of the process. Um, it's all part of the, the prairie process and and it's something for people to keep in mind, um, and not necessarily focus on, on the, the negatives of, of breeding duck numbers. So, um, you know, and, and one reason, you know, we're able to talk about this and this is why I wanted you to come on the show is, we, you know, all of this information, DU has all this information, um, because of science and research. And, you know, DU really touts itself on its ability to allow science to lead, the discussion to science, to lead habitat conservation programs. But, but I wanted to bring you on here to talk about some different different highlights and, and different things that um, DU is currently working on or has just recently worked on as far as science and research. And, um, you know, on our website, we currently have, if you go to our waterfowl research section, um, our audience can find the science spotlight report, which is went up, I don't know, a few months back. Um, But it's very important because it really highlights a lot of the things that we do. Can you kind of talk about how this international report, there's a science spotlight. um, Can you talk about this report and how important it is uh, for our audience to go and check it out, really?
3: The International Science Report that that you mentioned, Chris, is kind of a collection of of all the work that we're doing across the continent. It covers Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, and is really a, a list and a brief description of all the work that's going on. So it gives you a good sense of sort of the scope and breadth of the science that we're doing. The Science Spotlight that you mentioned really takes a deeper dive into some specific research projects and goes into more detail about The questions that we're asking, who are the cooperators, you know, when we when we conduct science, um, we do that in partnership um, with universities, um, with biologists from state and federal agencies. And so there's all these projects. There's a big partnership of folks. You know, working on these projects, So we're able to talk about that. and a lot of a lot of the work we do is you know with with graduate students. So we help to fund graduate research through universities. And each of those students has their own story about how they got interested in in waterfowl biology or wetland science and and what led them, you know to pursue that uh, for a career. And and the spotlight report really allows us to dig into more of those interesting details beyond you know just just a list of of everything that's going on. So it's a it's a great piece for us, and and um, I encourage everybody to take a look at them and and get a sense of of what's going on. A lot of times, you know, as scientists, we we tend to. Um, be a little more reserved and quietly do our work and, you know, don't talk about everything that's going on. But I think these reports give people a really good idea of, of all the work that that is involved in and all of our great partners out there in the scientific community.
1: Yeah. And one thing that I've pointed several people to the international report, um, as a reference, um, you know, I, I deal a lot with so, so social media, you know, people online, people sending emails, uh, even emails to the podcast where they're like, Hey, DU should do something in my state. And I'm like, and actually you can look at the report and you can look in each region, (laughs) exactly some, some real highlights of conservation efforts that D is doing. And it's broken down here by region. I mean, you've got Southern region, Great Lakes, Atlantic region, you know, Western region, and even out into uh, the boreal forest and, you know. Mexico, it, it's really cool, um, for me and really cool for me to share this part of the story because I can, you can really look at things and say, well, you know, actually they're doing, you know, uh, duck root, you know, selection wetlands and cropland dominated landscapes in the U S prairie pothole region, you know, it's like these very specific, um, research projects that you can point to and be like, oh, that's cool. And it really, really gives people an idea of what DU doing. But, um, can you bring up just a couple examples? Um, you kind of mentioned the Klamath basin before we got on and, and I know there's some research going on there and that seems, you know, is a very hot topic right now. Um, is, can you kind of provide some background on some research that's going on out there?
3: Yeah. So the, so the Klamath basin is, is another story of, of drought, you know, lack of, that lack of snow and rainfall has really re- diminish the water supplies to um, to those wetlands in, in the Klamath. And they, you know, historically have been a, a real crown jewel in the Pacific Flyway where thousands of ducks and geese migrate through there and, and they're going to be dry um, this year. And so um, our scientists are working with uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service folks out there to understand, you know, how food supplies are going to be reduced those areas are really important to migrating and in wintering waterfowl and we're curious as to um, how much less food is going to be available and how that may impact the, the conditions of the birds so that's going to be some uh, important work for us um, you know I, I would say another area that we we stay very active in is um you know species of concern, and I would characterize those are, are species that have been declining and and um, are below their their long term averages and and it's important that we really understand what is limiting their population so we've got some interesting work going on with model ducks in in uh, Louisiana uh, with our our colleagues out of LSU there um, taking a look at um, habitat selection of model ducks and and really what's impacting um, their success as, as populations. And, you know, once we know that information and can understand, you know, is it nest sites, is it availability of water for broods, then we can um, address those bottlenecks through our conservation programs by trying to provide more of that habitat that may be limiting uh, to those populations. So those declining species um, are, are an important part of our work around around North
2: America.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, just with the science focus and and, and now that we've shared this information and, and most people, a lot of people have already known about it, but, you know, with the opportunity for people to go in and look and see um, some of the real hands on work that DU is doing here. Um, you know, that really leads me to the next conversation that, um, you know, we recently updated and, and kind of rebuilt a section of our website under conservation that is ecosystem services. And you were a part of this and I was a part of this. Um, but I wanted you to come on and, and really talk about what Ducks Unlimited's ecosystem services program is. And we can kind of go through each, you know, each section of this, but as an overview, um, kind of explain this, this process and, and how this molds into Ducks Unlimited's overall, you know, conservation mission.
3: We've known for some time that, you know, the, the wetlands that we work to conserve ac- across North America, um, provide additional benefits to, to people, and communities beyond um, just the waterfowl that, that we love and care so much about. Um, there's benefits to, to people and those benefits include things like uh, improving water quality, um, replenishing aquifers that, that communities use to provide irrigation for agriculture or that they use as drinking water sources for municipalities, uh, there's flood uh, mitigation impacts from from wetlands so wetlands can store water that would otherwise end up in uh, roads and and towns and infrastructure um, wetlands can help to uh, mitigate those impacts they're important on coastlines um they also play a role in climate mitigation so wetlands are important in storing uh, carbon um, to reduce that greenhouse gas from the atmosphere and and so we're we're really um working to build uh, our scientific expertise around these other benefits of wetlands so that we can invite more people to partner and invest in our conservation work that that provides those benefits and, and, and really aligns with our waterfowl landscape priorities as well. And I can give you a few examples of that. So in, in um, the Great Lakes, um, there's been a fair amount of concern around phosphorus uh, excess amounts of phosphorus going into lake Erie and and when that occurs, it leads to algal blooms that you know can be toxic to wildlife and and people it can It can really cause damage to water intake uh, systems and things like that and and one of the promising ways to remove that phosphorus is to restore wetlands in the watershed of, of Lake Erie so that as runoff passes across the landscape, it can go through a wetland and, and that phosphorus can be removed. So it reduces the amount of, of pollution and, and impact on, on Lake Erie. Well, we also know that, that those same wetlands uh, around Lake Erie are important to, to breeding mallards. And so we're working on a on a new scientific grant in that landscape to see which wetlands are are most important for phosphorus removal and which wetlands are are most important for mallard production with the goal of really uh, overlapping um, those two sources of information so that we can uh, maximize phosphorus removal at the same time produce more mallards and that's that's really a a great example of our vision for um, this whole effort with ecosystem services is how can we uh, bring uh, people that are interested in all the benefits of wetlands together to help us all achieve a greater conservation footprint out there on the landscape?
1: Yeah, and I think I, you know, I even, you know, try and explain this to, you know, random people on the street who find out that I work for Ducks Unlimited and they're like, Oh, you guys are hunters. I'm like, well, yeah, but we're actually a wetlands conservation organization. And then you try and explain the benefits of everything from, you know, coastal flood protection to things that they would see on the news on a regular basis. Um, everything now hot topic, water efficiency, uh, you know, water quality, things like that, where I try and explain that, you know, the efforts the conservation efforts that are going into that um, may have started with, you know, preserving, you know, waterfowl habitat. They have much greater reach um, as far as, you know, water quality. People are like, really? You know, wetlands, are, you know, clean water? You're like, yes, actually they do. So it's really hard to explain. I think this is a great, a great program and a good way to have you explain how some of these um, processes actually work in some of the cool science behind it. One question I do have
2: for you, just to explain to
1: our audience, um, wetland mitigation is one of the aspects of this program. Can you explain what wetland mitigation means?
3: Yeah, so there, there is a requirement that if you utilize uh, federal funding for infrastructure projects or so roads, airports, uh, railroads, things like that, then you have to compensate for any wetland uh, damage that occurs with with that project. And there are various ways for a company or an agency to do that. They, they can um, do it themselves so they could they could hire an engineering firm to go in and replace those wetlands. You know, that takes time and money on their part. Another way that they can do it is to look for an organization like Ducks Unlimited that has an accredited uh, mitigation program where we are actively restoring wetlands and registering those with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who uh, oversees that, that program. And then they are able to just come to us and and purchase those credits to continue uh, their project. And you know we we think that that's a a great way to to be of service to the communities and and to the organizations that are taking care of our nation's infrastructure. And we also believe that um, our engineers and biologists are the are the best in the country at restoring wetlands. So not only is it an efficient way, but, but we get a high quality product that has lots of benefits to waterfowl and, and these other functions that we've been talking about. So I think it's an important role for Reduction Limited with our wetland expertise to be able to provide that to a, a broad swath of society.
1: Water efficiency, like, like I mentioned, it's a hot topic, especially right now in several areas of the country. Um, but it's a hot topic every year, In some areas of the country. And um, one of the more specific examples that we use is uh, groundwater recharge for aquifers. And, you know, this very common conversation in in places like Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas, um, but kind of explain... How this process works, how DU plays this role within this uh, recharging of aquifers.
3: I think one of the really interesting examples is the the Ogallala Aquifer, which in um, is in kind of the heartland of the country, so Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, New Mexico. One of the largest aquifers in the world, and it's it's used to irrigate agricultural crops and also to provide drinking water for municipalities. Um, that aquifer has been declining for years now. We, we've been using more of it than than we've been able to replace. And so there's a lot of interest in how do we, you know, how do we replenish that aquifer? Well, the the science that we've been able to um, conduct with our partners has shown that the the very best way to recharge that aquifer is through wetland restoration. So there's these uh, wetland types called Playa lakes that are overlay that aquifer. Their Playa lakes are formed by, by wind erosion. So during wind storms, historically they were, they carve out these Playa lakes and then um, they gradually develop the clay layer. And then when, when rain and snow fill the basins, there's wetland habitat. Well, these, these wetlands dry out every year. And when they do that, that that clay layer um, cracks. And so it creates uh, an avenue for water to flow through the wetland into the aquifer. And and over 90% of the recharge to the Ogallala occurs through these wetlands. Um, so we're actively working uh, in that landscape to restore wetlands, to uh, help replenish the Ogallala aquifer. And at the same time, provide increased waterfowl habitat. And, you know, the interesting thing that you mentioned, Chris, about, you know, bringing new people to the table, you know, we're seeing uh, companies like uh, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola Beverage companies that have pledged to replenish water that they use in their sustainability platforms, helping to fund that kind of work now. So, you know, 10 years ago, you know, that was kind of unheard of to have those kind of partners in in wetland restoration. But there is a there's a fair amount of momentum now um, through the sustainability pledges for uh, many other Partners to to join us and 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 others to do wetlands conservation for these type of benefits.
1: Yeah, and if anyone who's been out there, uh, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Kansas area, and seen these playas, especially in the fall, uh, they're highly utilized by waterfowl uh, migrating and wintering waterfowl through there. So uh, they're they're really effective you know, not only groundwater recharge there, but they are also, it plays the role just like, you know, we discussed. It is waterfowl centric, but it is also, you know, absolutely people, community, other wildlife, you know, focused. So that's a a good example um, of how, you know, this water efficiency, uh, recharging aquifers really benefits everyone, including waterfowl. Um, but you know, and, and that's, and you know, all of these, we can find examples, um, each one of these, everything from water quality to flood and storm, uh, and which is one I kind of want to ask you about the, the, the flood and storm protections, uh, natural protections from natural disasters. We see these on the news, we see hurricanes, we see, uh, flooding, um, uh, year in and year out, um, what kind of role does wetlands play here? And then how is DU being, you know, kind of on the leading edge of saying, Hey, you know, if we put additional wetlands here, uh, we can kind of diminish some of this potential damage.
3: So, so Chris, we've known, um, you know, for a while that coastal wetlands are important to waterfowl, you know, they're, they serve as nursery grounds for a lot of our important fisheries species. And so they, they've been, They've been high on the list of of conservation groups to um, keep them in place. I would say more recently, um, you know, science is showing more and more that communities that have coastal wetlands separating them from from the ocean, whether it's the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean, fare better in tropical storms than than those that are abut the the water. Um, or, or that are right up next to to the ocean. So having having those coastal wetlands in place really helps to reduce uh, the damage from tropical storms. And there there's a recent study on the Atlantic coast um, after Hurricane Sandy, looking at really trying to pin down well, what what dollar amounts are, are we talking about here. And this was this was done by the Nature Conservancy and Lloyd's of London, and they they determined that there was over $600 million of, of damage that was avoided by coastal wetlands on the Atlantic coast. And so that starts to give us a, an idea of, of the magnitude of that financial benefit. And then, you know, that gets the attention of, of insurance companies and, and local communities saying, wow, you know, we, you know, we can see how these coastal wetlands benefit us and can become partners in that work. And all those waterfowl and, and fisheries and, and other wildlife benefits accrue um, as we do that as well. So we're 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 doing more of that in, in Louisiana and, and coastal Texas and, and helping to restore coastal wetlands um, with new partners that that have this broad suite of benefits for people and wildlife.
1: Yeah, and and even you know something that hits closer to home for for those of us in the middle of the country, um, this flood protection isn't just coastal, uh, you know, it, it can be a river system, Mississippi river flooding. Um, we've seen the last few years, you know, especially South of us here in Memphis down in Mississippi, um, they've had some, some really bad flooding and, and, you know, some of these Conservation efforts um, are focused and, and I'm assuming you guys have some science along these river systems that are showing uh, that the benefits of wetlands there, whether it be bottom led floodplains, things like that, um, you know, are, are benefiting not just waterfowl and wildlife, but, but those are protecting communities. Is that am I getting that right? I'm kind of saying that, but I just wanted wanted you to kind of clarify and, and maybe even if you have an example of one um, within a river system as well as the coastal area. I think it's
3: important for our listeners to understand that, um, you know, these wetland systems along rivers like the like the Mississippi are not going to prevent flooding altogether. I mean, when we have big amounts of rain or record snowfall, you know, there, there's going to be some flooding along these rivers um, with or without wetlands. But the real value that wetlands have there is that they can absorb those flood waters and then slowly release them and so what we see in landscapes that, that have wetlands intact the the peak of that flooding so the you know the the elevation that gets flooded is much lower and it really spreads that that release of water out over time so that you don't get these big walls of water you know coming in and being real catastrophic uh, events so so wetlands really take the the peak off of of those events, and and the Mississippi River is is a classic example where we've had a lot of wetland drainage. We've had, you know, a fair amount of diking of that system so that the river, um, you know, doesn't naturally connect to the floodplain. And and those communities up and down the river are are learning more and more how wetlands can be valuable to that. Just um, in the last couple months, um, our CEO Adam Putnam signed a. Uh, MOU, a Memorandum of of Understanding with the Mississippi um, Cities and Towns Initiative, um, where DU is going to work with um, cities and towns up and down the Mississippi River to restore wetlands to help with flood control. And also the other benefits that, that come with that, the wildlife benefits, um, you know, a lot of times these wetlands are amenities to those communities. They provide a place for people to recreate, to get outdoors. And you know we're, that's another area we're learning more and more all the time—the health benefits to people to get outdoors and and breathe fresh air and be active—and so um, lots of interest in in having venues to to get outdoors and and how wetlands can really play a role in that and and help you know buffer our communities from the the most severe impacts of flooding.
1: And this is actually one of my favorite topics regarding, you know, some of the ecosystem services work that that you all are working on uh, is the biodiversity of wetlands and actually the biodiversity that wetlands provides, I should say. Uh, there, you guys have a really cool stat here on the website and I'm just going to read it that encompassing just 6% of the earth's land surface, wetlands support the life cycle needs of 40% of all plant and animal species. That's pretty impressive numbers. Um, can you kind of explain you know, this is, this kind of gets to almost like a hundred thousand foot view of wetlands, the benefits of wetlands here. Um, Explain how biodiversity um, is a part of this conversation and how you guys are using that to, you know, maybe attract um, some maybe non-traditional ducks unlimited supporters.
3: Yeah, sure. You know, wetlands are interesting, Chris, and that, you know, they are shallow water systems and that's, that's really why they're so productive. So if you think about, you know, you think about the different types of, of um, landscapes that you see in, in the country or the world, you know, we know that dry desert type landscapes, you know, the plants and animals there are really limited by the amount of water um, that they have. And, and so when you add water to, to a landscape like you have with a wetland, Um, You really you're able to create um, you know much more um, you know I not try to get too technical here but but biomass so you know plant and and algal material then that's the base of the food chain so you're really creating a a really powerful base of the food chain um, as things get too deep so you know we talked earlier about about lakes and and um, those type systems. Your productivity goes down, so you know. I think that's the real sweet spot of wetlands. It's is that they overcome that limitation of water, um, but they're not so deep that that light can't get through and things can't grow. So, so they're tremendously productive. I mean, they they're on you know on par with tropical rainforest as far as you know the amount of of energy that they can produce. And then that energy really feeds a whole, a whole food web of, of insects and, and small fish. And, you know, that feeds bigger fish and waterfowl and, you know, predatory birds and, and moose and all kinds of things that, you know, wetlands uh, attract because they're so productive uh, of a system. And so, um, by talking about, you know, those things interest, uh, you know, we had a we had a cooperative with a study just this past year with with our colleagues in Canada that showed that some of the very best pollinator habitat in the prairie pothole region uh, occurs in, in wetlands. And so there'd be we've had a lot of uh, recent concern about pollinators, things like uh, bees. They're so important to pollinating. Our crops have been declining and those species require uh, flowering plants. They require water. The best habitat for that in, in the prairie landscape are with our wetlands. And, and so understanding the role that wetlands play and, and supporting pollinators is a, is a new avenue for us to talk about um, the biodiversity that, that exists um, there as well.
1: Yeah, and we have some great examples of that. And I always like to, you know, comment to people, uh, especially during the summer. I always joke around that while everyone else is out fishing, I'm still talking about duck hunting um, and waterfowl. Uh, but I do fish a lot and I go out and I talk with people who are, um, you know, avid fishermen who may not necessarily be focused on Ducks Unlimited as a... Um, you know, as a member or even, you know, even a supporter, but and I'm always trying to make the argument like, man, that's, it's like one of the, you know, best ways to give back to fishing would be, you know, through wetlands conservation. And they're like, how? And I'm like, when well, there's tons of examples of, uh, you know, different research that, that DU's doing and, and helping out and different conservation efforts, I should say. Um, even in, in California, um, there's a great example in Green Bay where, you know, do use helping, um, put in what are called pike bananas, which are, you know, little shallow water features that, that pike use for spawning. So it's benefiting fishermen. I mean, the same thing goes for, um, bass and, 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 Crappie and bluegill, you know these these shallow wetland edges. I guess I should say really generate some of these smaller fish, like you said, that then grow big fish and 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 it's a it's really a trade off. You know what are some examples of some some other you know efforts that DU is doing right now that that would be benefiting you know fisheries? I mean, I think that's I think that's a good conversation.
3: I think the Pacific Coast is a great example you know there's a lot of interest in salmon on the pacific coast i mean they're important commercial species they're important uh, recreational species they're important to um you know native people along that that landscape and and salmon have been declining um because of changes to river systems there so barriers to migration and you know the diking of of shorelines and things like that so we we've actually um, through the research that we've done with with partners out there have learned that those wetlands uh, along uh, Pacific rivers that that dump into the the ocean there really provide critical nursery habitat for for young young salmon fry and and the the growth rates of those young salmon are much greater in a riparian wetland that's adjacent to the river than they are, uh, out in the river channel. And it goes back to what we just talked about as far as the productivity of those wetland systems. So there's just a lot more food, um, in a wetland, uh, than there is in a river channel. And, and those salmon are able to grow faster and be healthier, ultimately, you know, replenish that population, uh, through the wetlands conservation work that that d u does in the pacific flyway so it's a you know it's really a neat story because uh, you know salmon have this this magical migration where they you know when they get two or three years old they travel up the river where they were born and often thousands of miles and you know somewhat similar to waterfowl and the journeys that they take and and they share that common denominator of wetlands being critical to to their life cycle so i think that that is just a really fascinating story for me as an ecologist and i think for our country to see you know how wetlands tie into um you know the importance for so many species
1: absolutely and and before i get you out of here you know i kinda, i want to allow you to kind of provide an overview, um, you know, from the chief scientist, you know, we talk about these doing this research and then, you know, there's so many examples of doing things on the ground. How does that process within the organization go from, you know, supporting the research and science to actually moving dirt? Now, this question could probably take four hours for you to answer, but you know, it's, uh, but you know, maybe if you use one example or something where, you know, we take the science aspect of it and we always say Ducks Unlimited's mission is guided by science. Provide an example of that and how that process goes through the organization to the end result of you know, that on the ground habitat conservation. Yeah. So, so maybe
3: I'd, I'd back up Chris to this uh, 20,000 foot view and, you know, inform the listeners that, that we have um, an international conservation plan that is really the collection of all the science that, that we've been talking about. And, and what it does is it looks across North America and says, okay, where do we have, the greatest conservation of, of birds, how threatened is, is are those various landscapes um, that they're utilizing? What is the cost of doing conservation in that location? And how does that impact the size of waterfowl population? So we take all that information and, and we develop a, a, a return on investment model for North America that tells us, you know, when we have our private funding you know, where would we get the greatest biological return on that investment? And so we're able to use that to really drive our programs across North America. And so that that really leads us to, to say, okay, you know, the breeding grounds have the biggest impact on population. So we need to spend, you know, most of our time and effort there. But we also know that we don't want migratory pathways and wintering grounds to be a limitation in the future so we need to continue to work there and not let our coastlines erode not lose those wetlands and so that that science really guides um our our overall uh, effort in in that way chris and 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 then when you get down you know to an individual project it's really about understanding what type wetlands provide the greatest benefits to waterfowl? So I I talked earlier about understanding, you know, what was limiting model duck populations. The same thing's true um, when we work in in the prairies about, um, we know that the most important thing for um, nesting hens and broods are are the shallow, small, temporary wetlands. So really focus our, our conservation work and, with easements and and wetland restoration on those small temporary uh, wetlands. And then as we move into places like the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, um, we're really looking what types of wetlands will provide the most abundant food resources for waterfowl in those periods where they need a lot of energy to get through the wintering period. So that's where we get into shallow uh, moist soil wetland management we often talk about that produces a lot of seeds for birds, um green tree reservoirs where you know oak flats are are seasonally flooded to uh, give waterfowl access to those abundant acorn crops that are so important for species like mallards and wood ducks and And so, I would say understanding you know the types of wetlands that impact the life cycle and provide the greatest resource for waterfowl really guide how we target our work across all of these landscapes.
1: Fantastic description. And it really shows, um, how that science provides that the framework for that return on investment. I think that's, I think that was a good, a very good description of that. And, uh, Obviously, we're going to have to have you back on. We can go into each one of these specific topics and probably go for an hour easily. Steve, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast today. Thank you.
3: Yeah, great to be here and and good to talk to you, Chris, and uh, appreciate everything you're doing.
1: All right. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Steve Adair, Ducks Unlimited's chief scientist, for joining us today and really talking about an article that's on our website you can find on ducks.org, which is The Power of Wetlands. That provides a really good overview of some of the things we discussed today. I'd like to thank our producer, Clay Baird, for putting the show together and getting it out to you. And I'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us and supporting wetlands conservation.